welcome to the I Believe podcast, a podcast created and funded by A Cure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. I Believe in a Cure. This is one of the many catchphrases within the world of ocular melanoma. One of the most valuable things you can do for yourself as you join this club you never asked to be in is to lean in to social support. A Cure Insight has partnered with top doctors, lifestyle experts, and patients willing to share their stories to bring you a two-day virtual seminar, which we will be hosting October 8th and 9th. So save the date and head to the link in the bio or below in the show notes to register. We hope you are ready to join us virtually, meet new Omis, and learn about the latest research from the experts. Registration is now open. Hi, you guys. Okay, welcome, Akira Insight. Welcome to our broadcast. I have Melody, the president of Akira Insight, here with us, as well as Dr. Scott Walter. We are super excited to speak with Dr. Walter, and he is coming all the way from Connecticut over on the East Coast. So we're grateful that he's taking time after his busy day to be with us after seeing all of the patients that he's seen today. So a little bit about Dr. Walter. He is an ocular oncologist at the Hartford Healthcare and Skin and Melanoma Center. He is a retina surgeon, so a trained retina surgeon, and he is the only one specializing in ocular oncology in the state of Connecticut. So we're super excited to have him here. Dr. Walter, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you became interested in treating patients who have ocular melanoma? All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, Thanks so much to Danae and Melody for introducing me and welcoming me uh, into your community. It's great to be here and tell you guys a little bit about my interest in ocular oncology. So I guess it all kind of goes back to college where I kind of grew up in the genome generation, I like to say. They finished sequencing the Human Genome Project in my freshman year of college. So believe it or not, it was less than two decades ago that we, you know, finally sequenced the entire human genome for the first time. You know, that really opened up a lot of new avenues for research in in the health sciences. At the time, I was actually an anthropology major at Stanford and I was studying human evolutionary biology, and I got really interested in genetics and how that might inform us about human evolution and human history. And so I actually did a master's project looking at an ancient retrovirus that had incorporated itself into the human genome. And that kind of got me interested in medicine when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I did uh, medical school and you know learned a lot more about medical genetics while I was there. Got excited about ophthalmology and ended up going to the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, which was a really amazing place to train, really phenomenal mentors there. And one of the people I really kind of latched onto was was Bill Harbour, who I'm sure many of our listeners today are, are familiar with that name. Bill Harbour had been at the University of Washington in St. Louis, um, where his lab kind of developed uh, gene expression profiling, which was kind of a first major breakthrough in terms of our molecular understanding of ocular melanoma. And so he actually got recruited to Baskin Palmer and joined uh, the faculty right at the same time as I came in as a resident. And so I, I met Bill Harbour and really found his research to be very exciting and compelling. And I got involved in his lab while I was a resident there. And you know, every Friday, if I could make it to the lab meetings, I would go and kind of listen to what his grad students and 
you know, and, and the, the postdocs were doing in his lab and really just found it so incredibly fascinating. And, and while we were there, it was actually a really exciting time because uh, one of the grad students discovered PRAME, which is one of the new molecular markers that we have on our gene expression profiling. And also, uh, simultaneously, we were kind of defining the major driver mutations that turn a choroidal nevus into a malignant choroidal melanoma. And uh, since then, we've actually uh, been able to incorporate that mutation profiling into our latest iteration of the molecular testing that we do for choroidal melanoma. So it was really exciting time to be in Bill Harbor's lab. And, and that got me pretty excited about ocular oncology, although I ended up deciding to go on and do a retina fellowship at Duke after I finished my, my uh, residency at Baskin Palmer. And while I was at Duke, I found another awesome mentor, Prithvi Murthanjaya, who I'm sure some of our listeners uh, know that name as well. So Prithvi uh, was our ocular oncologist at Duke. And, you know, he's just one of the most compassionate, wonderful clinicians to work with. All of his patients just love him. And, you know, he's incredibly dedicated to ocular oncology and mentoring residents and fellows. So that was a phenomenal experience for me to work with Prithvi. And then unfortunately, Prithvi got uh, stolen away to Stanford uh, halfway through my fellowship. But uh, yet another incredible mentor showed up. And that was Miguel Matarin, who had been at Yale. And he uh, joined the faculty at Duke while I was uh, midway through my fellowship there. So I got to spend a year with Prithvi and then a year with Miguel. And uh, both of them, you know, had you know, phenomenal bedside manner and both of them sort of very much disciples of Bill Harbor and, and the molecular understanding of choroidal melanoma. So I got the perspectives of these three incredible clinician scientists, you know, during my training. And that kind of convinced me that I wanted to do both ocular oncology and be a vitreoretinal surgeon. And so you know, after I finished my retinal surgery fellowship, I decided to go back to Baskin Palmer and spend another, you know, several months with uh, Bill Harbor, this time really focusing more on the clinical aspects of ocular oncology. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now. I've been in practice in um, Connecticut for about four years now, and uh, the timing worked out pretty well because uh, Miguel Mattern, who'd been uh, you know, at Yale, uh, left a bit of a gap in coverage here in, in uh, New England and, and in Connecticut specifically. And so I kind of landed on the scene uh, right uh, as he had uh, left all these patients hanging in Connecticut. And uh, so I got to inherit uh, many of his uh, former patients, um, you know, and, and also a lot of other patients in Connecticut who'd been going to Boston or uh, New York or Philadelphia or elsewhere for their care in the past. And pretty quickly, I, you know, started finding new patients here in Connecticut with choroidal melanoma and, and other ocular oncologic conditions. And uh, we've built actually a very busy practice in the last uh, couple of years. So uh, I've been having a great time doing this. I, my, my passion for uh, ocular oncology, my passion for genetics and, and for retinal surgery kind of all come together when, when we're talking about this subject. So it's a, it's a really, um, you know, exciting area for me to be practicing in. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all constantly learning, but I think we're coming together as a community. Um, and, uh, you know, these mentors, Bill Harbour and, and Dr. Mirthan Jaya and Dr. Matter and, 
you know, I, they're still on speed dial for me, uh, you know, when, when we have interesting cases or, or, um, you know, tough, tough cases to, to manage. So that's a little bit about me and how I got to where I'm at. Well, that's amazing. And I know just as a patient myself, I appreciate someone who has kind of been around the block for a while, just with, uh, with all of the different fellowships and the, the schooling that you've done, but also just, I can just tell how passionate you are, not just about the field of ocular oncology and understanding, you know, all of the molecular and the science, I guess, behind it. Um, I'm not a doctor, so I can't speak to all the terms, but it does make me, I guess, feel good just knowing that like there are, there are ocular oncologists who care about their patients and that, that, I mean, I think that they're, they're rare enough that we, we have a lot of them who feel that way and are very, very, you know, you wouldn't be in this field if you didn't care. So I'm grateful for that. Just speaking as a patient myself. So thank you. Um, the focus of our discussion today is molecular testing in ocular melanoma. And I know this can be something that a lot of people have questions about or just are uncertain about. So can you tell us a little bit more about what molecular testing is and why it's important for newly diagnosed um, ocular melanoma patients to just discuss this option with their doctor? Absolutely. So, you know, um, you know, way, way back, you know, in the 70s, we used to basically, you know, have only one treatment option, which was to enucleate the eye. And when we did that, obviously, we could look at the tumor under the microscope and um, you know, that gave us some information uh, about, you know, how aggressive it was, how likely it was to spread. But, you know, beginning in the 1980s and 90s, we started moving away from enucleation and, um, you know, more and more patients were being treated with plaque brachytherapy, which um, I'm sure many of our listeners are, are most familiar with that treatment modality for melanoma. Um, and, um you know, uh, when we do plaque brachytherapy, obviously we're not removing the eye. So, um, you know, the question was, should we be biopsying these tumors? And, you know, can we really get information from a smaller sample of the tumor? So, you know, people started doing uh, fine needle aspiration biopsies, which gives you just a, a handful of cells, um, sometimes no cells at all, unfortunately, you know, because we're biopsying a very tiny um, uh, uh, portion of the tumor. Uh, and so that gave more limited information in terms of, you know, when the pathologist looked at the sample under the, the microscope, they'd say, yeah, there's some cells here. They look a little funky, but, you know, I can't really say for sure whether this is a melanoma. I can't say for sure how aggressive it is. So there's kind of limited information we can get just from looking at the cells under the microscope themselves. But this is where, uh, you know, Bill Harbour's work in the lab really uh, started moving us in a different direction, you know, in terms of being able to glean a lot more information from uh, just a couple of cells than we can from looking at the microscope. So what Bill did was he looked at, you know, a, a well-annotated group of large choroidal melanomas, uh, some of which metastasized and some of which didn't. And these eyes had been enucleated. And so he went back to the lab and kind of tried to evaluate, were there some sort of molecular signatures that distinguish the ones that spread from the ones that didn't. And believe it or not, his gene expression profiling platform was kind of developed through um, AI and machine learning, but it was it was trained on a, a data set of like 20 or 25, you know, patients is all. But it turns out to be this incredibly powerful tool for determining which uh, melanomas are going to spread and which are not or at least are less likely to spread. 
And so, you know, that led to the development and eventual commercialization of gene expression profiling, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. And we'll talk some more about exactly what what information we get from that uh, as we go along here today. Okay, so this biopsy procedure that you're talking about, it's changed from this fine needle biopsy that was very limited in the scope because it was only taking a few cells to then being able to, thanks to Dr. Harbour's research and all of your guys' research combined, I'm sure, to be able to look at those same cells, but to basically have a bigger picture from those cells. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, so so instead of just looking at the cells under the microscope, we're actually looking at, you know, what genes are turned on in those cells, what genes are mutated in those cells. And that gives us, you know, a, a much broader a data set to to use to kind of understand uh, how how malignant the tumor is. Gotcha. Okay. So this biopsy procedure, can you kind of like explain a little bit of what this is like for us? Absolutely. And just kind of the risks associated. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing the biopsy procedure and, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. Um, But uh, my preferred technique is very similar to how we perform retinal surgery. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a retina surgeon. I'm used to being inside of the eye and working, you know, in and around the retina. So I like to do it um, using the same setup as we would use for what's called a vitrectomy procedure. So basically, we go to the operating room, we do the procedure under uh, conscious sedation, which means that, you know, the patient goes to sleep for a few minutes, we numb the eye up, and then the rest of the procedure, they're actually awake. And at that point, they're fully anesthetized, they're not going to feel any pain, they're going to feel pretty relaxed, you know, throughout the procedure. So once we're in the operating room, we obviously want to do this in a sterile fashion. So we prep the eye and uh, put on our sterile drapes, and, you know, the surgeon gets scrubbed and gowned and gloved. And then we place some what are called vitrectomy ports, which are these small self-sealing incisions in the eye. And we have these little tunnels through which we can introduce instruments into the eye. And one of those tunnels contains a light source. And so that's illuminating the inside of the eye so we can really see what we're doing. And hooked up to the operating microscope, we have some special equipment that allows us to get a, a complete uh, picture of what's going on inside the eye while we're working. And then there's another port, which is basically uh, filling the eye up with saline or salt water solution. So that helps to maintain the pressure in the eye, because when we start doing the biopsy, the pressure is going to go down. So we need to stabilize the pressure in the eye while we're doing it to avoid any bleeding, which is the major complication of the procedure. As far as doing the biopsy itself, there are several different ways to do it. Uh, Some people prefer to do it with a, a long needle that's a very small gauge needle so it's a tiny incision in the retina but that's one way of going about it the other way of going about it which i prefer is to use something called the vitrectomy probe which is the sort of multifunctional instrument that we use to perform retinal surgery and that instrument can actually get into even smaller tumors and biopsy them very minimally invasively and then once you've performed the biopsy you know that specimen gets placed in a buffer, which is a way of kind of stabilizing the molecular information from those cells and uh, gets shipped off to a lab uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, run by a company called Castle Biosciences. And they're the ones who actually perform the molecular profiling of the tumor. And if there's enough tissue left over, I like to save, you know, I'd like to divide the specimen into, into three specimens. And so 
one specimen stays at the hospital or the facility where I'm doing the biopsy and gets looked at by the pathologist there. So that's kind of our conventional first look to make sure that we see melanoma cells uh, in, the, in the biopsy to confirm we got a good specimen. Uh, second and third specimens go on dry ice and they get shipped out to that lab in Phoenix. One of the specimens can be run for three different tests, and we'll talk in a little bit about what those tests tell us. And then the the third specimen is kind of a backup. And I like to have a backup in case there's any kind of a technical failure or issue with the results on the first biopsy. You know, secondly, we're constantly learning more and more and more about the molecular basis of melanoma. And it may, you know, be that five years from now, we want to go back and look at your tumor and find out, you know, does it express this new marker that we just discovered? And so we don't have to go back and biopsy the tumor. We have that, you know, backup specimen, which Castle kindly um, stores for us free of charge in their repository so that we have tissue to go back to uh, if we decide we want more information down the road. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Castle Biosciences actually is in my backyard. <laughs> I live in Phoenix. So fun news. I didn't know that it was located here. For patients, I guess one of my concerns going into a biopsy when I was talking with my ocular oncologist was just fear around her telling me about this bleeding. It sounds like this procedure and everything you're describing, that it's a pretty controlled situation in most cases, and that you feel pretty confident in being able to control that bleeding that could be a complication, but that ultimately you guys isolate so many of the factors that could have that happen so that it is eliminated. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, I, I think that's why I prefer, you know, the, the vitrectomy style approach, because if there is any bleeding at the time of the biopsy, I can raise the eye pressure to a specified amount. And that can, you know, that in and of itself can stop the bleeding. I can apply laser or a cautery to the biopsy site if necessary to uh, stop the bleeding. And also to, you know, let's say the retina is detached, we can reattach the retina at the time of the biopsy. Sometimes we'll place a gas bubble in the eye to help the retina reattach or help the retina heal. So, you know, I think for, for someone who's cross-trained as both an ocular oncologist and a retina surgeon, I'm very comfortable performing the biopsy and there's nuances to every case. Some clinicians are maybe a little bit more conservative about who they're willing to biopsy because of the risk of bleeding or risk of a retinal detachment. So, you know, it's important to, you know, talk with your provider about, you know, what their comfort level is with performing the biopsy in your individual case. Awesome. Okay. That makes sense. So in terms of these molecular tests themselves, it sounds like there's like multiple different tests that can happen with Castle. Which of them do you recommend and utilize the most? So I like all the information I can get. Um, all the information. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as much so, as we can get. <laughs> so the most important, actually, why don't you queue up the, the slides that I sent over so yes, we can, can kind we of talk about sec. the information. Share with us, guys. We've got a quick screen share. You know, the first big breakthrough, if you can go back to the beginning, I think maybe one or two slides. Yeah, that's it. All right. So the first piece of information, which Castle was able to give us was the gene expression profile. So the gene expression profile looks at 15 different genes that are differentially expressed in choroidal melanomas and in normal tissue, okay? And so it's looking at some genes that are upregulated, some genes that are downregulated. There's a couple of genes in there that are there for sort of control purposes. And basically it stratifies 
your specimen into one of three buckets, class 1A, class 1B, or class 2, based on the expression profile of those different genes. And the reason this is so powerful is that this kind of blew out of the water everything else that we had in our arsenal to predict the risk of developing metastasis from choroidal melanoma. So previously, we were kind of relying on clinical features like the size of the tumor, the location of the tumor, and some of the pathological features that we could see under the microscope. All of that pales in comparison to the information we can get from this simple gene expression profile. So basically, those three buckets have very different levels of metastatic risk. If you're a class 1A tumor, you have about a 2% chance of metastasizing over the next five years. Whereas if you're a class two tumor, there's a 50% chance you could metastasize within three years and a greater than 70% chance you could metastasize within five years. So two very different scenarios if you're class 1A versus class 2. Class 1B is sort of somewhere in the middle. I think we're still learning how, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum of metastatic risk and we're still kind of learning what class 1B means. But if you have a class 1A result, that's very reassuring that this is a low-grade tumor that's likely to stay in the eye. If you have a class 2 result, that's a more aggressive form of melanoma that's clearly more likely to spread from the eye to other parts of the body. So let's move to the next slide. So this new marker uh, that I briefly mentioned earlier, which was discovered by one of the grad students working with Bill Harbour while I was there as a resident, is, is called PRAIN, which stands for preferentially expressed antigen in melanoma. So PRAIM is not in the 15 genes that were originally used to, to develop the gene expression profile. So it's, a, it's an additional biomarker that's separate from those 15 different genes. And PRAIM can be turned on whether you're class one, class two, anywhere in between. Okay, so PRAIM is kind of an independent biomarker of metastatic risk. And it turns out that PRAIM positive Class 1 tumors are more likely to metastasize on average than prime negative. And, you know, as far as the, the class 2 tumors, it seems that the prime positive tumors are a little bit more aggressive. They're the ones that tend to metastasize earlier than the prime negative tumors. So prime is kind of this second layer of metastatic risk that's superimposed on the gene expression profile. So let's go to the next slide. So how do we develop a choroidal melanoma? Basically, you know, the hypothesis is that you start with a benign precursor to choroidal melanoma called a choroidal nevus, which is basically a mole that has developed in the retina. And as it acquires additional mutations, it turns into a cancer known as choroidal melanoma. So we just talked about how that cancer comes in different flavors, class 1A, class 1B, and class 2. So let's now go to the next slide. The next generation sequencing is the, is the kind of latest piece of information that the Castle Biosciences uh, test gives us. So tumors start out with a mutation in either GNAQ or GNA11, and this is a mutation that occurs even in choroidal nevi, which are those benign precursors to melanoma. If the choroidal nevus acquires a second hit, another mutation in one of three different genes, EIF1AX, SF3B1 or BAP1, that's what really turns it into a melanoma. And it turns out that these three different genes are very closely related to the gene expression profiles that were previously identified by Dr. Harbour. So the EIF1AX 
tends to go along with the class 1A gene expression profile. The SF3B1 tends to go along with the class 1B, and the BAP1 mutation tends to go along with the class 2. So again, this is sort of another layer of information. I look at it as kind of like a spell check or a confirmation that the gene expression profile makes sense. So if you get a class 2 result, but you don't have a BAP1 mutation, something doesn't add up. The two don't don't seem to make sense. But almost always when you get a class two result, you're going to see that BAP1 mutation. And that gives you confidence that it's really a class two tumor. It has that BAP1 mutation and has that metastatic potential to spread. So I look at this, you know, we don't exactly know, um, you know, how this is going to impact the metastatic risk, but I look at it as kind of confirmation that we are really dealing with a class two tumor versus a class one tumor. So we can go, yeah, this is, this is a case I just wanted to share with, with our audience. This is a patient who came in to see me last week with a blurry vision in his right eye. His visual acuity was 20-30. And he had this small uh, pigmented choroidal lesion in the macula. You can see right there on the calipers that it measured 5.5 by 4.9 by 1.5 millimeters. So this is a really small uh, tumor, but it's in a dangerous spot because it's right there in the macula, which is the center point of the vision. And the reason his, his vision was blurry was because there was fluid leaking out of the tumor, leading to a localized area of retinal detachment that involved the center of the retina. So you can see uh, in the top image there, the, the tumor, and then in the bottom image, the fluid that's kind of leaking out of the tumor into the center of his vision. And then uh, on the left image, you can see that's kind of a color image of the back of the eye showing the dimensions of the tumor. And then on the right, we have what's called the fundus autofluorescence, which is uh, another imaging modality that helps us, you know, identify features of the tumor, such as hyper autofluorescence, which is kind of the bright areas on there that can correspond to orange pigment, which you may be able to see on the left image. So let's move to the next slide. So this patient was age 66. So he is in an age range where we're definitely concerned about developing choroidal melanoma. The average age is 62. So, you know, patients in their 60s were definitely a little bit more suspicious that they could uh, really be having a cancerous uh, growth in the eye. He has symptoms. That's one of the risk factors that's been identified by you know, Carol Shields and Don Gass and, and many of our, you know, forefathers in the field of ocular oncology who helped to define the risk factors. Subretinal fluid is another one of those risk factors. Orange pigment, which I mentioned, shows up bright or hyper autofluorescence on that black and white image to the right. And then uh, this patient, uh, this was the first time they were seeing me, but, you know, there was documented growth previously by the other ophthalmologist who'd been following him up until the point he was referred to see me. So this patient, based on, you know, all these factors, even though they have a small tumor, I was concerned enough about the possibility of this being a choroidal melanoma that I wanted to perform a biopsy. So I did the biopsy yesterday. And if we go to the next slide, we can see the image on the left is yesterday's, or sorry, is the, uh, is the pre-op image from a week ago. And the image on the right is the uh, post-op image. This is one day after the biopsy. His vision's still 20-30, so vision has not uh, decreased at all. 
there is a little bit of bleeding. You can see some red there on the color image. And then the, the black and white image that you see at the bottom is the, is the OCT, which is what's, and think of it as a cross-sectional slice through the retina. It's kind of an optical ultrasound image of the eye. And you can see the, the biopsy site there on the um, bottom right-hand uh, image. So a little bit of bleeding at the biopsy site, but the retina is uh, basically, you know, looking otherwise the same as it did prior to the biopsy. So, I think that's kind of cool. And I do have a question, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So it sounds like you did this test without necessarily doing um, like plaque brachytherapy. So is this the kind of biopsy that you, I mean, is it is it newer that it can be performed ahead of any kind of treatment option kind of as a way to diagnose? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, historically, we used to basically make our diagnosis clinically by looking at the tumor. And, you know, we kind of say, you know what, I think this is a melanoma. I'm going to go ahead and treat it. And I'm going to biopsy it at the same time as I treat it. Okay. And that still makes sense when it's obviously a melanoma. If, if a patient walks in and they have, you know, a huge tumor in the eye, I'm just going to go ahead and say, this is definitely a melanoma. We got to treat it and we're going to biopsy it at the time of treatment. And that'll give us some information that'll be helpful in terms of, you know, assessing your risk down the road. But this is a different patient, okay? This is a patient who's got a small tumor, could be a, it could be a benign nevus that just happens to have three or four risk factors for turning into a melanoma. It could be a low-grade melanoma, or it could be a class two melanoma. We don't know just from looking at it, right? So this is the ideal situation to biopsy the tumor first and make a treatment decision later. So let's go to the next slide. So basically we have, you know, three different treatment options for choroidal melanoma. We have, you know, laser, which is appropriate for some very small choroidal melanomas, things like PDT or TTT, which stands for transpupillary thermotherapy. But that's kind of historically been a minority of cases that were treated that way. Then we have plaque brachytherapy, which is the kind of workhorse treatment in our arsenal for treating choroidal melanoma. And that's the radiation treatment that's really good at killing the melanoma, but unfortunately has a lot of side effects in terms of affecting the patient's vision. Patients develop radiation retinopathy. And certainly if we were to treat this particular patient with plaque, they would lose vision because of the location of the tumor. And then finally, we have a nucleation, which used to be kind of our, our only treatment option, but has kind of fallen out of favor as plaque brachytherapy uh, was shown to be similarly effective for medium-sized tumors. So as we're catching these melanomas earlier and earlier, I think we're shifting you know, from a nucleation to plaque brachytherapy. And I think we're starting to shift more into the laser category uh, when we're able to catch these tumors at a very small size, like the patient that we talked about earlier, where the thickness of the lesion is less than two millimeters, and we may be able to burn the tumor and eradicate it with laser therapy as opposed to radiation therapy. So, so let's go what to... I'm understanding, sorry, yeah, what I'm course. understanding is you, you recommend treatment based on this biopsy if you're able to catch it with a smaller tumor. Exactly. So big tumor, treat and biopsy at the same time. Small tumor, 
that you're not sure. Is this a is this just an ugly looking nevus? Is this a low grade melanoma? Is this a high grade melanoma that we just happen to be lucky enough to catch early? I can't tell from looking at it. I need the biopsy to determine what's the most appropriate treatment for that patient. And so that's, I think, becoming more and more common in my practice is that we're catching these tumors earlier and earlier with multiple risk factors for turning into melanoma, or maybe they're already a melanoma. The only way to find out is to do the biopsy. And so if we go to the next slide, this is kind of my treatment algorithm. I don't know, you know, there's no hard and fast rules. I think that, you know, everything has to be a conversation with the patient, what the patient's comfortable with and what the patient wants to do is really at the forefront of this. But, you know, as a general rule, if we have a small class 1A or class 1B tumor that's prime negative and has an EIF 1AX mutation, I think laser is an appropriate treatment option as our first line therapy. And then we watch and see if the tumor continues to grow, we haven't closed the door on radiation. Okay. We can still go down that road, but you know, this is someone who we may be able to spare, you know, the ill effects of radiation. Now getting into the plaque brachytherapy bucket, this is really uh, a great therapy for larger class one tumors and for small class two tumors. So we know that if we treat a class two melanoma before it reaches 12 millimeters in basal diameter, we can essentially cure that patient with radiation. So that's the ideal candidate is to find the class two tumor before it gets to 12 millimeters and treat that patient with radiation. We're likely to cure that patient. So again, we can treat, you know, let's say it's a class one that's prime positive. I'm kind of worried about that patient. I might want to steer them towards a more definitive treatment like plaque brachytherapy. Again, if they have SF3B1 or a BAP1 mutation, we're definitely wanting to treat more aggressively. And then as far as enucleation, that's really reserved for those large class two tumors with definite BAP1 mutation. You know, this is the real bad guy that we want to get every last melanoma cell out of this patient's body as, as quick as we can to hopefully prevent them from developing metastasis. But sometimes, you know, by the time we're, we're seeing that patient, unfortunately, the cat may be out of the bag in terms of those cells having microscopically disseminated to, to other parts of the body. So nucleation is kind of, you know, reserved for those really large aggressive tumors, plaque brachytherapy for most of the tumors with true malignant potential. And then the lower grade melanomas, like small class one tumors that are prime negative and have those more benign mutations, we can consider treating with laser as opposed to radiation. And then of course, you know, if they, if they continue to grow, we can move in the direction of radiation therapy. So it kind of sounds like I'm just going off of my experience. I know like when I, I started having symptoms and my tumor was pretty large by the time it was located. And based on kind of some of the information that you gave, you mentioned something about a 12 millimeter thick, is that the thickness that you're looking at? So 12 millimeters is the, is the basal diameter or the width of the tumor. So if okay. we catch it before that reaches 12 millimeters, there's a really high cure rate, even for those class two tumors with the BAP1 mutation, there's a high cure rate with plaque radiation therapy. But unfortunately, once the class gotcha. two tumors grow larger, then sometimes it's already spread from the eye to other parts of the body. And so we have to be really, really vigilant in those patients about doing the metastatic surveillance with 
frequent scans to try and, you know, if it does spread to catch it as early as possible. Melody has a quick question. She says, so how small is too small to allow that that nevus or that tumor to be biopsied in the way that you're describing, like kind of before treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, using the vitreous cutter is a little bit easier to biopsy small tumors than with the long 27 gauge needle. The reason is that the bevel on the uh, needle is about a millimeter and a half. So you really have to fully, you know, you have to have about a two millimeter tumor to get that needle fully embedded in the tumor. Whereas with the vitrectomy port is basically 10th of a millimeter from the tip. So you can embed the port in a very small tumor. So I would say, you know, Around a millimeter is probably the the limit. And of course, you know, we wouldn't be biopsying something smaller than that because generally tumors that are less than a millimeter are not going to have enough of these risk factors that we're, you know, needing to biopsy them. Okay. I think just because we have just a couple of these questions and they relate to what we were just talking about, can we go ahead and just answer like two or three questions? Sure. Okay, so this question is, how would we know if our doctor kept a backup of this tissue sample for future use? Is there a good way to ask? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if that's standard practice for other doctors. I started doing it when I found out about the CASEL repository program. If your doctor did it, they would have had to get your consent to do it. So there's a special consent form that I have patients sign at the time of the biopsy. So if you don't, you know, sometimes it's a very emotional time and you may not remember everything that you, you signed. So, you know, feel free to ask, you know, if that sample is available. Um, but the other good thing is that uh, Castle, I think, has saved the residual material from any tests that they've done from 2016 onward, I believe. And so it may be possible, even if your doctor didn't specifically save a, a backup, biopsy that they may be able to run additional testing on the residual specimen. And so that that material may be available. Let's say they ran the gene expression profile, but now you'd like to know about your PRAIM status or your uh, NGS mutation profile. In some cases, we can go back and run those tests you know, on the old specimen, even though it wasn't specifically uh, designated as a, a repository specimen. Okay. Okay. So then this is a different question. It's kind of talking about the size and location. So how does the size and location of the tumor affect the risk for a class one tumor? Is there any specific data that you have there that you'd like to share? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, that's one of the things we hope to learn more about in the upcoming COOG2 study. So the COOG2 stands for Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group. And so this was a large multi-center trial. We have about 25 or more centers participating in the trial. And we are basically looking at the PRAIM status and the next generation sequencing mutation profile for over 2,000 tumors. So this is actually the largest study of choroidal melanoma ever conducted. It's bigger than the COMS study, which was done uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And so we're going to have a ton of information, you know, when that study reaches its conclusion about, you know, whether there's any geographic, you know, or anatomic characteristics that are more highly associated with different uh, mutation profiles. So stay tuned. We uh, we're starting to analyze the baseline data as we speak, and hopefully in the next year or two, we'll 
be better able to predict from the clinical picture what the biopsy result is going to be. But at the end of the day, these tumors can really surprise you. I found a couple of really small class two tumors that to me looked pretty benign. And sure enough, they had a BAP1 mutation and we caught that patient super early and, you know, really saved their life by, you know, identifying a class two tumor and treating it before it got to, to that larger size threshold. So I do think that our practice is shifting as we get comfortable biopsying smaller and smaller tumors. Um, we're going to be able to find those class two tumors before they blow up. That is definitely going to be a good thing. I do have kind of a bizarre question myself about, you mentioned that it's, it's pretty rare to have a class two melanoma without a BAP1 mutation. Is that correct? So is it that's possible correct. to have that or is it just rare? Well, you know, that's or, a good sorry, question. I, I think, you know, there are different hypotheses about what that could mean. You know, one hypothesis is that it's a false positive on the gene expression profile. So there's been some research suggesting that if there's too much blood in the specimen, that can sometimes make the gene expression profile class two even if it's, if the tumor itself is really a class one. So it's possible that the result is a false positive. And I think that's, again, getting to the kind of spell check concept. You know, if, if the class classification and the next generation sequencing line up, then we have confidence that that result is truly accurate. If the two don't line up, then it's a little harder to interpret. And we don't exactly know what to make of those discordant scenarios. But in my experience, there are very few surprises. Usually the, the GP classification is spot on with the NGS mutation profiling. So again, it gives me additional confidence in that result and making treatment decisions based on it. Okay. So this is from someone who had a biopsy done in 2009. I'm not sure if you spoke to the types of biopsies that happened at that time, but it sounded like that was more of the fine needle biopsy or was Castle performing at this point? Yeah, you know, that's right. I, you know, I don't know the exact dates when the Castle, um, you know, test became commercialized. I think that's a kind of right in the dawn of, of this technology. And I'm not entirely sure if that testing was available in 2009. Okay. So yeah. they basically are asking, um, this person's asking, since there's now additional classes, instead of just class one and class two, how do they, is there any way for them to know, I guess, from their 2009 biopsy, is there any way for them to know where they would fall if they were classified as only class one or class two, you know, without having the knowledge of the preying positive and the 1A, 1B? Is there anything sure. that they can glean from that? Or are they kind of just with what they have? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, a few, a few points to make, you know, first of all, you know, it sounds encouraging if you had the biopsy in 2009 and you have not developed metastasis yet, I think your chances of developing metastases are, are starting to become very, very low. So that's a good indication that the, you know, the results are probably, you know, even if you had more information, it's probably not going to change the outcome of your situation. So you are doing great. That is uh, very the, true. <laughs> the second thing to say is that you know, I can't, I can't speak to your individual case, but I'm sure that your provider can get in touch with one of the medical science liaisons at, at Castle Biosciences. They're super responsive. I'm emailing them, you know, 
throughout the day when I'm seeing patients asking, you know, follow-up questions, can we do this? Can we do that? And they get back to me within minutes usually. So, you know, I'm sure your provider can reach out to them by email and quickly get an answer as far as what may or may not be feasible with respect to your specimen. So I would say if, if you want to learn more information or, or if you want to find out what information may be gleaned, reach out to your provider and, and have them reach out to Castle Sciences and hopefully they can give you a more concrete answer. Awesome. Okay. So moving on a little bit with some of these questions that I've got here, can you tell like these tests, can they tell the patients anything about their future risk of developing other kinds of cancers? So, you know, like some somatic and germ germline mutation testing and that kind of a testing for BAP1, BAP1 patients, is that something that you would recommend? Okay, great question. So this is kind of another difficult concept, right? So the tumor biopsy is just looking at the DNA of the tumor. It's not looking at your germline DNA. So the mutations that we find in the tumor probably arose in the tumor. It's possible, however, that you have a germline mutation in BAP1. If you have a BAP1 mutation in the tumor, it's possible that you carry a germline mutation in BAP1. That's pretty rare. It's about one in 20 patients with a BAP1 mutation uh, may have a germline mutation in BAP1. And why is that significant? So that's significant because this BAP1 mutation is not only associated with ocular melanoma, it can be associated with other cancers. It can be associated with skin melanoma, can be associated with kidney cancer, and can be associated with a rare type of uh, lung cancer known as mesothelioma and other cancers as well. So if you have a family history of any of those other cancers or personal history of skin melanoma and eye melanoma, I think it makes sense to go ahead and do germline testing for the BAP1 mutation, you know, because that may affect your risk of other cancers and it may you know, impact how we do surveillance uh, for those cancers. And it also may impact your reproductive risk of passing on this cancer predisposition to your descendants. Okay. That makes sense. So what should a patient who has a high risk of metastases in their result expect as far as how closely they should be monitored and followed by an, an oncologist for metastatic disease? Yeah. So again, this is, this is a subject that's, you know, a little bit variable in terms of how people approach the metastatic surveillance. Most of my patients, you know, if they have a high risk of developing metastasis, they want to do the frequent surveillance and find it early. But, you know, some people really don't want to stress too much about it, you know, if it really depends on the personality of the patient. And so I personally uh, work with a medical oncologist who helps to kind of lay out the options and contextualize the results of the biopsies so the patient can kind of decide uh, with that medical oncologist about the surveillance strategy. But in general, I'd say that if you have a class two tumor, then uh, you need to be monitored more frequently and with uh, more comprehensive imaging. So a lot of my class two patients are getting scans every four to six months for the first five years. And if they're disease-free after five years, then maybe we go a little less frequently. The class one tumors, if they're, you know, kind of large class one tumors, 
then I think, you know, again, every six to 12 months, we should be doing some kind of surveillance scans. If they're small class one tumors, I think once every year is probably sufficient. So that's kind of how I break it down is, you know, lowest risk category once a year, medium risk category once or twice a year, class two, two or three times a year, we should be monitoring for any signs of it spreading. So I know there's different types of imaging that are available um, at, for use for, you know, monitoring for metastatic disease. Is there any that you specifically prefer, like for your medical oncologist to order? Yeah, again, it kind of gets to the, the risk uh, benefit ratio, right? So if we have a, a class one tumor, we may just want to do some, some basic surveillance with a liver ultrasound and a chest x-ray, and that may be enough to kind of give us peace of mind. Whereas if we have a large class two, we want to be a little bit more comprehensive in terms of our imaging. So those patients are usually getting a CT scan or an MRI of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis to look at the lungs, look at the liver, the sites where this disease is most likely to spread. And if there's any changes or you know specific areas that need to be monitored, that may determine exactly what imaging modality is, is best for that patient. So... This kind of testing, obviously, we've got the surveillance that happens, and that's for watching for metastatic disease. Do the genetic test results help in a patient qualifying for different clinical trials? Well, I think that's it's already coming to to the forefront and will be an even more important part of you know how clinical trials are are designed as we move forward, you know. Uveal uh, or ocular melanoma is a rare disease, and it's hard to accrue enough patients in a clinical trial. We want to be able to do these trials with a small number of patients, but be able to show a statistically meaningful difference in survival in a short amount of time so that we can try you know, different strategies and figure out what works. And the best way to do that is to enroll a bunch of patients who all have similar metastatic risk so that we can, you know, tell from 10 or 20 patients whether there's a likelihood that the treatment is effective or not. If we enroll 10 patients, but, you know, some patients are class 1A and some patients are class 1B and some patients are class 2, you know, variability in metastatic risk is going to make it very difficult to analyze the results of the trial. So a lot of these, you know, clinical trials now are looking at really high risk uveal melanoma, which is typically defined as a class two tumor with a a diameter greater than 12 millimeters. So those are the patients who have the highest risk of developing metastasis. Again, that risk is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% over the next three years. So we can do a short three-year study, you know, of new treatment and we can get an answer with a small number of patients. So that's kind of the ideal patient population that we're targeting for a lot of these uh, clinical trials. And it's really exciting because that's actually led to the discovery of some really promising leads in recent, you know, months. Uh, just this year, we've had two new, you know, therapies on the horizon, which are showing significant promise in terms of extending survival in patients with, with metastatic disease. So hopefully, you know, we're going to build on that momentum and keep kind of moving forward with this disease and, and finding a way to, to hopefully cure more patients or at least prolong survival in those who do develop metastasis. For sure. That's, you know, obviously that's the big goal, right? 
So what about if we have patients who didn't have an option to have their tumor sent for genetic testing? Like as far as monitoring goes, as far as kind of how they approach their care or their doctors approach their care, do you have anything specific that you recommend for any of those patients? I don't know if maybe you took on patients who were in a similar situation that they the biopsy wasn't available at the time that they were yeah, diagnosed. I definitely, I've definitely taken inherited several patients who you know weren't biopsied either because the biopsy wasn't available or because the clinician wasn't comfortable biopsying the tumor because of its location or its size. And so for most of those patients, I don't think it's necessary to, to perform a biopsy now. You know, I think we can kind of move forward with the information we have available to us and not stress about, you know, the information we don't have. Uh, but in some cases, it may make sense to, you know, perform a biopsy after treatment has been performed. And so there's a handful of patients in whom I've either done a repeat biopsy or you know, biopsy the tumor, you know, after it's been treated when no biopsy was performed in the first place. And so, you know, that can be done. I think it can still be informative, although uh, Castle has a disclaimer that the, the test is really not validated on tumors that have been previously irradiated. I think the, the gene expression profiling may, may no longer be accurate, but the mutation profiling uh, should still be accurate. So that can give us some information. But in my experience, uh, I've, I've re-biopsied a handful of tumors after they were irradiated. The gene expression profile was the same afterwards as it was before. So I don't see, even though it's not validated for that specific sample type, I think the test is probably still pretty accurate. Okay. So some patients have biopsy results of CLAP1, but also monosomy 3. And my understanding, and I don't know, Melody, if you want to jump in here, my understanding is that monosomy 3 is done through a different biopsy. Is there a way to reconcile those disparate results at all? Yeah, so, you know, the CASEL test does not look at monosomy 3, at least not currently. However, you know, monosomy 3 tends to be kind of a correlate of the BAP1 mutation. So the BAP1 gene is on the chromosome 3, and so you basically need to lose both copies of BAP1 in order to uh, develop a class two melanoma. So one way to lose a second copy of BAP1 is to delete uh, one copy of chromosome three. So a lot of uh, patients that have monosomy three are really class two tumors that have a BAP1 mutation. You know, we can kind of think of monosomy three as more or less equivalent to uh, class two GP with a BAP1 mutation. At least that's how I, you know, simplistically think about it. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Okay. So if you have patients who they know their tumor class, but they don't know PRAME status or mutation status, is this one of those situations where you would recommend that they I guess no, my understanding would be that number one, they would need to check with their doctor to see if that was tested for. And two, that they could, it, it sounds like as long as it's 2016 or later, you were saying that they could call Castle basically and have them check or retest the sample if they have any stored. Yes, that's my understanding is that, you know, Castle often has the ability to retrospectively run those analyses on specimens that were collected after, on or after 2016. 
Okay. So if you have someone who say is maybe a, um, I can't remember the term for it, but like a, a rarity, a unicorn, um, as far as having like, you mentioned that the BAP one almost always comes with the, the class two and that for it not to come with it, that it would be pretty rare. So I guess just speaking from my experience, what I, everything that I'm remembering from my doctors talking about mine is that I don't have a BAP one, but I do have a class two. So is that if I were to say contact Castle, is that something they could retest the same tissue and would it still yield the same result or could they retest it now that it's been stored and potentially have a clearer picture? Yeah, I mean, I think the best information is always is always the uh, information that was obtained when the tissue was fresh. You know, we're relying on you know molecular uh, methods that are really validated on this fresh tissue that is immediately placed in the buffer solution and analyzed. You know, pretty soon after it's collected. I doubt that you know retesting the same specimen you know down the road would give you different or new information if the test had already been performed. But if there were backup specimen or, you know, an additional specimen available, you know, that might be worth checking, especially in a case, uh, like you mentioned, where there seems to be a discrepancy between the gene expression profile and the mutation profile, where, you know, it could be that there, one of those is correct. Okay. I guess that's, that's food for thought for myself or any other unicorns out there who might be like, huh, well, <laughs> mine looks different. Okay. So obviously there's lots of research and you mentioned the, is it the COOG study? COOG? Yeah. Okay. So is that a study that you are currently a part of or just that you know of? Yeah, I'm, I'm an investigator in the COOG2 study. Um, this is kind of the, um, the latest, um, uh, multi-center trial that's been organized by Bill Harbour and uh, a lot of his uh, colleagues around the country who are really uh, believers in this molecular testing platform. And so basically, uh, we're validating uh, the PRAME biomarker, we're validating the next generation sequencing, we're looking at smaller tumors that, you know, in the past, uh, you know, weren't included in big studies because people didn't uh, want to biopsy small tumors, but our threshold for doing so has really uh, changed in recent years. So I think we're going to have a lot of really exciting new insights into uh, the biology of small tumors, the metastatic risk of small tumors, and uh, we're seeing some, you know, different patterns of treatment. Like I talked about, you know, my own pattern of treatment has evolved um, and so we, we, we may have some early uh, indications of, you know, how our um, different providers in the field are, are shifting their, uh, their treatment choices um, uh, as, we, as we biopsy and treat smaller and smaller tumors. That's really cool. Um, so what really, and I think you've kind of touched on a little of this, but just to kind of, I guess, to end, unless you have anything else specific to share, what is the most exciting to you right now about the recent and the ongoing advances with ocular melanoma and just within that field uh, as you're working with patients, as you're learning new information, what kind of keeps you going, I guess? I mean, I think the most encouraging thing is that just that our field is really working together in a way that historically, um, you know, it, it was a bit of a divisive area uh, uh, a couple of generations ago. There were, you know, some, some big, 
uh, egos out there that kind of dominated the field and, uh, you know, their way was the, the only way. And I think, you know, we're talking to each other and sharing, you know, what we're learning and we're, you know, getting together for conferences and really kind of all working together to move forward um, and to develop new understandings of this disease. And, and the progress is palpable. It feels like every year there's something, you know, new that we're learning and uh, being able to incorporate into our practice. So I really enjoy being part of this collaborative ocular oncology group and, uh, you know, getting together with my mentors and other like-minded ocular oncologists around the country. And, you know, every year I, I take away, you know, two or three things from that meeting that change the way I practice. So I think that collaborative spirit is really what's going to bring us forward a lot faster as, as we um, continue on this journey together to take better care of our patients with this very rare and serious disease. Well, I know that I appreciate you. Melody, it looks like you have something. I have a question, yeah. Could you tell us what the ocular melanoma community can do to help our the advancement to get, just help you guys understand us more or what can we do to help move research along? We've got a very large patient base that is really looking forward to being involved, but we don't really know how to get involved. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, that's, that's an area we, we ought to really leverage that resource to our advantage as we, as we all kind of come together on this, you know, every year now, uh, for the past couple of years at the Coug investigators meeting, we've had uh, one or two patients join us to kind of provide their perspective as we have our, you know, very high level discussion about, about this disease. And, you know, often those patients are, are physicians themselves, so they can kind of understand, you know, the talk uh, at a higher level than, you know, some of our other patients who don't have that medical background. But I think it'd be great to just sort of broaden that, you know, engagement of the patients, you know, with this condition. I, I just am always struck by how grateful patients are by the care that we provide, uh, for the care that we provide and, and uh, the peace of mind, I think, that comes with, you know, a provider who has confidence in the diagnosis and uh, is able to steer the patient to the appropriate uh, resources and not, you know, waste a lot of time and healthcare dollars on things that don't matter uh, for patients <laughs> who are really at low risk, but really, you know, be there and, you know, be helping to route patients who need uh, those uh, resources to access the resources and, and get you know, treated appropriately by a multidisciplinary team. So we've really built a great team here in Connecticut. Uh, and I, I have to acknowledge all of my you know, colleagues in the Melanoma and Skin Center, the Radiation Oncology um, Department. And, you know, it's great to have a local team that, you know, takes excellent care of patients. And I'm sure all of, all of our providers out there have assembled, you know, similar, you know, connections with the allied providers in their community and, and our patients really uh, appreciate that. Well, I think that's awesome. That collaborative spirit. I know Melody and I talk sometimes about how we just, every, if everybody would just stop arguing and just all <laughs> collaborate to help. That's the whole point. Like we all want to help, whether it's patients or the doctors, like everybody coming together is really the most powerful, the, the, the most powerful thing about, about research, I think. So I know this may be, maybe a little bit more um, 
maybe on the emotional side of things, but I do want to just touch on this because I know that I'm not the only one um, who, with, you know, with a class two diagnosis who looks at those statistics. And I, I, for one, misunderstood them when I was first diagnosed. And so my understanding was that after the first three years, my risk went down. So then I got my results from Castle and I looked at them again and they're like, actually, it goes up until five years. And I, I was pretty alarmed by that. I think when I kind of first realized that again, um, do you have anything that you maybe approach discussions, you know, about class two and about this higher risk of metastases um, with your patients? Like, how do you approach that with them in a way that doesn't leave them feeling like totally hopeless of just like, well, you just basically told me like, I've got a 30% chance that I'm going to make it through and everything else is against me. Like, how do you, how do you kind of help them reconcile that? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. And it's a conversation I'm, you know, constantly learning to have. And, you know, a lot of it just comes down to being able to read the patient and understand, you know, how to communicate that information, you know, in a way that's compassionate and at the level where they're ready to process, you know, what you're, what you're telling them. And so you know, some patients want all the information up front and they want to take home that, you know, report and kind of pour over it. And, you know, other patients, it kind of helps to you know, take a more gradual approach in terms of, you know, coming to grips with uh, what that information means. So I think a lot of it is, is understanding the patient personality and helping them have that conversation when they're ready to have the conversation and also having, you know, other providers you work with who are on the same page and understand the information as well as you do. And, are, are going to communicate a message that's not confusing or contradictory to the patients, because that's, that's where things can really get scary is when one person says one thing and the other person says another thing, and I don't know who to believe or what, what to, you know, how to make heads or tails of this. So I think, you know, we're constantly having uh, discussions, me and the medical oncologist I work with about, you know, how, how we communicate that information to our patients and, you know, staying on the same page. And we have a nurse navigator who, you know, is there to provide additional support and, you know, spend time with patients who want to really kind of better understand, you know, what's going on. So I think having, having those ancillary resources as well, you know, for patients to reach out to when they have a question and, you know, just feel like they can, they can get an answer, you know, any, any time of day and whenever they need it. So, I like to pride myself in being very available, you know, to all of my patients, but especially my patients with uh, this condition. I think, you know, it's really important to be available and responsive, you know, when, when they call with questions or concerns and, you know, we, we kind of start off seeing each other a lot and we, you know, learn about the disease at each visit. And, you know, then once we understand what's going on, we kind of space out the visits and, Know, and continue sort of building our relationship with one another. And it's really one of the most gratifying patient populations to take care of because it is such an emotionally serious disease. You know, we build yes. really strong relationships between providers and patients. Well, I think that's amazing. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I chose my own ocular oncologist out here in Phoenix is because of that relationship. I felt like I was able to develop with her. So well, I don't see any other specific questions from the chat. Melody, do you have any other questions for Dr. Walter? I don't. I just thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time after a long day in clinic, but we do really appreciate you. And we hope you come back and, and give us some an update 
when something else comes available. Absolutely. I'd be delighted. Thank you so much to Dr. Walter for his time, obviously, and for his expertise, all the research and the, the time that he's put into this. So we are so thankful. And we're going to go ahead and close out the broadcast. So we will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.